0: Let's do it! Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically.
1: Main Man. An interesting story. A very
0: entertaining story. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 49 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The main man philosophy was to provide financial support that enabled their artists to fully explore their creative freedom, while pioneering outrageous and often very controversial promotions and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore.
1: This is Cherry Vanella at the RCA Studios in New York, and today I have the honour to interview David Bowie. <laughs> Hi, David.
0: Say hello, David. Yeah. Hello, David. Mainman worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Moth the Hoople, Danica Lespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, and David Bowie. Until I'm performing or writing, I m- mainly feel pretty much of an empty vessel. In January of 1972, while promoting the Hunky Dory album, David slowly began revealing his plans to unleash his exciting new alter ego as main man founder Tony DeFreeze recalls.
1: Looking back on Ziggy Stardust, over half a century ago, the character that David created happened during a very, very busy period and a very significant period. There were ups and downs. There was a lot of paranoia. There were uncertainties and there were rehearsals and more rehearsals and more rehearsals. Just like preparing an athlete for his or her Olympic performance, the work for the team, but especially for the one who's going to perform is arduous it's demanding and it always needs somebody on the outside who can say we're done or we're not done we're ready or we're not ready i became the person for david who would always decide if we need to change rearrange rehearse and re format what we were going to present before we went into the studio before we recorded but most importantly before we appeared in front of an audience who'd never seen this Bowie before and had never seen anything like this Bowie before there was nothing like Ziggy when Ziggy was first given life. So let's look at that. Let's see, how did Ziggy get to be Ziggy? Where did that strange, androgynous creature come from? The imagination of lots of different influences, lots of different writers, lots of different artists and performers. David's always been. He was then, and up until the end of his life on Earth, He was a magpie, and he admitted it often himself. He would look for things that he could fit into, the music, the songs, the lyrics, the characters. And much of the beginnings of Ziggy came from David's short but very influential time studying mime. Whilst he was studying mime, he delved into, and very much with the help of Lindsay Kemp, the Japanese influence on theatre, on music, and particularly on mime. This is a discipline and a performing art called kabuki. And kabuki requires the dancers, performers, to dress up fantastically, to often wear masks, to change their perceived sex and size. This is where David is going when he talks about cats from Japan with screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdos. This is where we were when we took on The astonishing task of putting up a theatrical rock and roll performance with story with dancers with the spiders from mars with a very early incarnation of ziggy and that of course was our rainbow show and in our rainbow show we had all those factors And we had David in his ziggy outfit and his ziggy, almost ziggy hairdo, cavorting on stage with a bunch of transgender-appearing kabuki folk. When David started, and in a way when Angela started (laughs) shopping for David, to get together this character that we wanted to put on stage to create the feel of a rock opera that is really described in Ziggy Stardust. One of her influences was a Japanese designer called Kansai. Although people often think the Japanese are small, there's a whole ethnic set of Japanese who are not at all small, and Kansai was one of them. He looked like a Japanese version of Elvis Presley, And he was six foot tall and made the most marvellous costumes, many of which he began to make for David once we reached out to him. For a brief while, he became part of the main man's stable of artists. And we brought him to New York. Obviously, when we did our Japanese tour, he was a primary factor. But even before that, because he's... Things like his boots, which were astonishing, and his cut-off T-shirt type, half an arm, no arm, bare-shouldered, and very, very different types of costumes, which became signature costumes for our Ziggy character. And ultimately, through the period of Ziggy, those were the costumes that David wore. Rehearsing to get not just the music, but the staging of Ziggy Wright created a lot of concerns for everybody. Not least of these was when David, egged on by Angela, decided to announce that he was gay, and that is when Ziggy comes out. The response from the English press was clamorous, some supporting, some not supporting. But what it certainly did was create an atmosphere where all of a sudden, David was more than just another aspiring rock star. He was more than just another songwriter. He was a messenger. And in a moment, in that sense, David gave himself the mantle of a champion for... All those young people who were still struggling with sexual identity, with gender identity. So there is, all of a sudden, a hero. David was, on the one side, very happy at the press that he was getting. But the other side of David, he was always more than one personality, as many of us are, was terrified that this would be the end of his career, that this would be a disaster, and became entirely depressed and suicidal. Angela, hoping to change his state of mind, particularly since she was the one who'd promoted this idea initially, suggested that we should announce that Ronson was also gay, and then it would be better for david because now he'd have a gay brother on stage david was somewhat relieved but ronno when he was asked (laughs) said absolutely and i can't do his northern accent but absolutely no way is he going to come out and be gay and off he went back to hull this was a moment of crisis because Frankly, David couldn't afford to lose Mick. Mick was ultimately his perfect foil, musically. He was making David's music accessible and realisable and dynamic and everything it hadn't been before. So here is David plunged from first the pinnacle of, wow, now I'm a hero. I'm Dylan for the transgender folk, to oh my God, I've just destroyed my career, I'm going to commit suicide, to the peak of, oh, Ronson will come and save me, and then back to the depression of, oh my God, I'm still not being saved by anybody. This is what David went through on a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone around him was duly cast up or down, depending on the mode. And... In many ways, although we can say that Angela was enormously supportive and helpful, she wasn't necessarily the most sensible person to be around David. She didn't have any kind of, if you like, calm. She was always noisy, loud, hysterical, and trying to push David forward. And sometimes you need to step back and say, okay, Let's all just calm down, relax, and plan to go forward in a meaningful way, not just get completely up about something or completely down about something, but rather get to a place where we have a real plan, which we did have. We'd made enormous strides in moving David from an unsuccessful folk singer-songwriter-performer to a place where he could be, a challenging rock and roll performer and a very important songwriter. My vision was David as a very important songwriter, very significant artist, and with enough support and coaching, enough rehearsal and enough confidence, a standout performer. So all of this is on display in his moment of coming out and if he can come out as himself as the real david bowie and then adopt that person to be at least one of the ziggy characters then he doesn't really have to too much bother about what happens after that so i'd say Although we didn't anticipate it, when it happened, coming out was an enormously important step for David. Gave him, ultimately, a great deal more confidence than he would have had otherwise. And opened an entirely new audience and entirely new space for him. He became a leader, not a follower, for the first time. Now, of course... uh, My then partner, Lawrence Myers, was horrified because he didn't see this as a plus. But I did say to him at the time, Lawrence, publicity is always a good thing. If you want to promote something, you need to make people aware of it. You can always change the direction of a particular thing later, but if nobody's paying attention, nobody's watching, nobody's listening, it doesn't matter. If a lot of people are suddenly watching and listening, now you've got a platform and a stage. But he wasn't entirely reassured until, somewhat later, he saw the outcome. And even then, he had uncertainties, which eventually led to the creation of Main Man, because I needed to go and do this on my own. And I did. Now, how do you move from this place where... You've got a band who are in disarray. You've got the lead guitar player's decamped. You've got a hysterical band wife, artist wife, really. And you've got a deadline to deliver records, do live shows, move David forward. Now, we had already made recordings on January 11th. We made a recording for BBC on a show called Sounds of the 70s. With John Peel, the DJ, on the 18th, we did another recording of the same song with Bob Harris. This was the first time David recorded the song Ziggy Stardust. So we ought to take a look at why is Ziggy Stardust important as a song? What is it about Ziggy Stardust as a song that gives us the insight to Ziggy Stardust as the character? as the image that David's trying to live up to, if you like, or perform. Here's the script for the actor that David has to become if he wants Ziggy to be real. When you look at the lyrics and you listen to the song, a number of things come up. The guitar riff that drives the song is essentially Ronson. Although David wrote the song and determined the chord sequences and the composition... When David plays the song acoustically, it doesn't have anything like the effect of when he plays it with Ronson and the Spiders. Particularly when Ronson introduces the riff to Ziggy play guitar is when the song becomes enormously and vividly important. Lyrically, we can see that David's idea of Ziggy is largely drawn from all the rock stars and movie, movie stars and those people, those characters that have achieved the moment, sometimes longer than a moment, but a spotlight of fame. And then for various reasons, often because bands break up, often because fans lose interest, and very often of course because of accidental premature endings from narcotics or from alcohol or mixtures of both or from simple accidents all these things preyed on david's mind because he always had a overhanging fear that he might succumb to what had haunted his family for a long time which was mental illness or that he might succumb to simple failure or that he might become too reliant on a band who would ultimately let him down. And all these fears, these hesitations, made it harder to keep him focused on the work. The work was the only thing that would get David through. And keeping him focused on the work was a problem that I had. And very often Angela, who meant well but wasn't always too careful to keep him believing that he had a destiny, that he was important, that everything he did meant something, and that working at it would ultimately be successful. He talks about becoming the special man, and he talks about playing for time, about crushing his sweet hands, about being the Naz, another reference to Jesus who had a huge following, who then turned on him and became his destroyers. These are all the things going through David's mind when he wrote this song. And one of the things, of course, was having to break up the band. At the time, Woody and Trevor and Mick didn't realise that that was something that was going to eventually happen to them. They weren't deep thinkers. They hadn't studied the kind of things that David had studied it didn't occur to them that he was, in effect, forecasting his own future, which included their future. They didn't want to get caught up in being Ziggy forever. He wanted Ziggy to be someone he could play out, play act, and eventually, maybe, hand off to somebody else or simply discard. They didn't think of any of those things. They were too caught up in, A, the work, and B, the fact that, they were becoming famous. They noticed themselves, even when they went on support shopping trips in Bromley, that they, people knew who they were. They'd never encountered that before, so it was quite quite a remarkable thing to happen for them. They, they all talked about it after the event of how they would go shopping and come back with all the things they'd bought without having spent any money, because people in the local shops were saying, no, no, you can't pay for it, take it, take it, and giving them things, and that of course had never happened to them in Hull, and never happened to them before actually, so it made them think, wow, we're special, but most importantly it made them think that David was special, and he became their focus, which was fine for doing what we needed to do, but ultimately of course resulted in The problem that every band has when it breaks up. Where do you go next? What band do you join next? Who do you follow next? It's not easy. Back to where Ziggy, now that he's come out, now that David's come out, what's Ziggy going to do next? Well, evidently, Ziggy needs to have a persona that can be performed on stage and in public. And this was something that very few performers or artists had done before some had but the idea of becoming the person you are playing the idea of becoming the actor you're acting the idea of embracing completely a character that doesn't actually exist was something that only people like James Dean or Elvis or Marilyn Monroe if you like had achieved. it wasn't something ordinary people could expect to do wasn't something even very good actors could expect to do. If you were Laurence Olivier, you were expected to act the part that you were given, not keep on being Laurence Olivier. Ultimately, Laurence Olivier probably did do just that, but his best roles were ones where he subsumed himself and became the character that he was supposed to play. That's very difficult for somebody who hasn't really been theatrically trained. David wasn't an actor, he was a performer. What I decided and made a policy for David was if you're going to introduce such a strong character as Ziggy and you want to be successful, be Ziggy. Don't just be Ziggy when you go on stage, be Ziggy when you meet the press, be Ziggy when you give any kind of an interview. Or when you do a photo shoot, think Ziggy, be Ziggy. And David took that advice to heart. He said, OK, I'm going to be Ziggy. And of course, Angela was delighted because now she could go on dressing up her doll, David. Very much a, you know, let's dress him up and present him to the world. And so between them, they became a pair who were acting out. Unfortunately, Angela couldn't act out being Mrs. Ziggy Stardust because there was no Mrs. Ziggy Stardust, so she had to act out being Mrs. David Bowie instead, which wasn't as appealing. (laughs) Didn't have as much level of interest as Ziggy. Ziggy had a lot of interest from the press and very soon from the audience. So now, how do we move on with Ziggy? At some point, we've got to put him on stage to perform. And after rehearsing over and over many times, deciding on songs, what song to sing where, even deciding on the break that Ziggy would take when we would let Ronson take over the stage with his astonishing guitar solos, that all had to be organised, decided, and, again, rehearsed. Before we could go to the next step. On the 22nd of January, what I describe as Ziggy Comes Out happened. That's when the melody maker published David's admissions and his philosophy of being gay and why it was okay to be gay. The press picked up on it. And so on the 29th of January, when we did our first ever show of Ziggy Stardust for an audience at Friars, a venue that David had performed at before, but never as Ziggy, and never with the Spiders. And that performance and that review were the two major features of Ziggy being born on stage. Other important things that happened in this era, this few months, and that had a very, very significant effect, were the opening of Clockwick Orange. Now, Clockwick Orange, written by an English author, Anthony Burgess, was something that David and I had both read and discussed before it became an astonishing and very successful film. When it was announced that it would be opening in the UK, and we had an opening date and location, I arranged for David and Angela, myself, Melanie, and all of the Spiders to go to that performance, to watch that film. As a result, when the Ziggy album came out, we had a liner insert that features the Spiders as the Droogs in A Clockwork Orange Scenario. But before that, we'd taken the idea of Global Orange, of the kind of boiler suit outfits that are shown in the movie, and most importantly, of course, the soundtrack music, which became our opening music, and incorporated it into our Ziggy rock opera, our Ziggy stage show. Then had features of the music, Beethoven's Ninth, as it's beautifully adapted, and the Druids as now performing musicians. This is a complete departure from anything that any rock performer had done before. And as the momentum built up around that first show and the press response to that first show, And then, as we went on and did more and more and more of these shows, in the space of less than a year, Ziggy Stardust became the most important act in the UK. And then, on to America.
0: In January of 72, Ziggy and the Spiders spent quite a lot of time rehearsing at a small basement studio in Greenwich, south-east London, which is also where Iggy Pop and Lou Reed rehearsed with their bands when they arrived in town. How important was that little studio at the time?
1: In the era that produced Ziggy, or when we look at this time frame in which Ziggy came out in 71, 72, rehearsing was something you did in theatre, and you did when you were working in the classical musical space. But it wasn't nearly as essential or important in the pop industry or the rock industry. And as a function of cost, there was very rarely a budget for a band to go and rehearse in a rehearsal facility in the same way that there might be, and often was, a budget for a string section or even a jazz band and always any form of orchestra to go and rehearse. In the making of BBC Radio, when it was in the music arena of contemporary music, rock music, pop music, the same thing applied. They didn't have essentially budgets that would allow you to say okay I'll do that particular session, and I'll play three or four or five songs, but I need a budget to rehearse them. Nobody asked the BBC to do that, because they probably knew they would get a straightforward no thank you. (laughs) People wanted to go and do BBC radio, because it was a chance to get your song, your new song preferably, but at least to get your performance out on the radio and hopefully get more gigs, sell more records, etc. My approach, which was always somewhat different from, let's say, the general approach, was to be very focused on making sure that if you're going to do recordings for the BBC, which aside from the fact that they will be broadcast, They're also going to be around forever, unless the BBC, which they frequently did, of course, managed to lose them or tape over them. But if they didn't do that, you might find yourself with a recording that you were not very happy with many years later. And the only way to make sure you didn't fall into that space was to control the recording by controlling the way that it was delivered. And since you couldn't control the BBC, at least not yet, later we did, but not yet, (laughs) when we were looking at doing something on Sounds of the 70s in January, it was necessary to go and pick the songs and then rehearse those songs. Now, through 71, we'd been rehearsing largely at... Haddon Hall, in a very, very small space. And although it was adequate for rehearsing before we went into the studio, i.e. before we went to make the album, Hunky Dory, and then later Ziggy, it wasn't very adequate for recording something that would, again, not be in your control. The advantage of recording in a studio where you were paying for the studio was you could decide what survived the session, what it sounded like, what the mix was like and so on. You couldn't do that with the BBC. So it was necessary to make sure that whatever you were going to do at the BBC would be as good as you could make it and therefore you needed to be at least as competent for those songs As you were for when they were recorded in the studio. So that was essentially a way to look at how to prepare. Again, in the, and largely because of all those reasons I've mentioned, there was not a very significant amount of well equipped large recording spaces unless they were part of one of the more accepted musical formats classical jazz orchestral they had studios but they were not generally speaking adequate or available for doing the kind of music that was being performed in the rock space or the contemporary music space studios that did have that sort of capability were invariably small the underhill studios had viable equipment but again a very small space and those are studios that we'd used to rehearse the songs that we recorded for Hunky Dory and later for Ziggy and now they became the studio of choice to go and rehearse for this upcoming BBC recording session And of the four four songs that we chose, they could all be rehearsed, but in a very, very tight space. One of the outcomes of going to work at that Underhill studio was that we met a couple of people who were working at the studio at the time. Willie Palin was one of them, and Robin Mayhew was another, who would then become part of our permanent sound tech staff. And in fact, we helped them put together an entity called Ground Control, of course, harking back to David's Space Oddity song. And Ground Control became an independent unit that we helped to fund and hire for May man artists, particularly at the beginning, in this period, for David. So we have all these connections that give us finally a little... Well, mixing and sound group of our own to take on the road. Again, this was unusual for any act to have their own sound staff, as it were. Generally, you hired what was available or you used what the venue had. But this left you with many, many difficult choices, choices that weren't necessarily going to give you the best outcome. So for us, it was important For Ziggy, it was gonna be very important to control rehearsals and recordings and performances and broadcasts. And all of that rolled up into this situation that we were looking at in January of
0: 1972. Tony DeFries recalling the time five decades ago when David slowly began unveiling Ziggy Stardust. There are some great pieces of Mainman archive referencing this period that are available on the Mainman label website. It's part of an ever-growing collection of Mainman documents, including articles, telexes, letters, and production notes. A lot of them never seen before that we're adding to the Mainman label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at Mainmanlabel.com, and on the website you can also check out the other episodes in the Mainman series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.